are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Our prayer has been that this special time of worship would be truly meaningful to every person who attends Southwest on this Easter weekend. My personal prayer, as I've just finished praying, but in the weeks and days leading up to today, is that every person in attendance this weekend would leave here deeply impacted by the Easter story and truly sense that they had experienced a personal encounter with Jesus. To help prepare you for this possibility, we wanted you to hear from a a very special couple here at Southwest who did experience a very significant encounter with Jesus on an Easter two years ago. We want to invite you to listen to their story now. Yeah, it's it, for like 34 years, you know, it's like I didn't have the right teacher or somebody didn't say the right words or something. And so, you know, we're very logical people and it never made sense. Nothing, It didn't click that Jesus died and we were saved from our sins. I didn't get why he had to die and I didn't get why that action saved us. And, you know, I never made that connection. I never thought to ask anybody. But then the week before Easter, Roger's sermon was just, it was clear and it was almost like this door had been flung open. And I even emailed him and I said, you know, I had a real wow moment today because it finally made sense. You know, Jewish people used to take, um, you know, their best lamb or their best whatever, their sacrifices, and that would have to bear the weight of their sin. And Jesus was our best. He's the best of us. And so, you know, he bears the weight. He was, he was perfect. He was sinless. And we're not. And so he took that on his shoulders and he was our sacrifice, and he was a sacrifice that we couldn't, couldn't be. We just made the decision to make Jesus a part of our daily lives and um, kind of let him guide our decisions with our family and anything, any kind of obstacles that would come our way. We started using him as the focal point um, to make our decisions. sermon and during a lot of Roger's sermons at the end of it he says something like you know well the water's warm if you're ready to make a decision today we have extra clothes we you know I've I've heard him say it so many times and that was that was one of those days where you know it was Easter it felt fitting Mm -hmm. and it was even to that point that I was like I engaged the muscle to get out of my seat and then I stopped and through the sermon for me um, I just had a wave waves of emotion come and so we're sitting there, and, and we both agreed, we want to be baptized today. It was incredible. I mean, it was, the church was empty. Obviously, everything was, mm-hmm. was over for the day. So it was just us and our kids, um, Sarah's mom and Roger, and that was it. But um, it, was, it was just an awesome day. We couldn't have thought of a better day yeah. to, to take that action. Since that day, we have... Uh, incorporated being the hands and feet of Jesus. 
um, the kids and I were on our way home from, I don't know what we were doing, but we were on our way home and we saw like an old man carrying uh, groceries and he was really struggling on the side of the road. And so, you know, I, we passed him and, you know, it went through my head that he was struggling um, and feeling bad for him. But something inside me with the kids in the car said, no, you need to turn around and you need to go around and you need to help that that man. The man was so thankful and, you know, he told us how he had just recently lost his son and he was just so super thankful because he, um, he had never had anybody be that nice nice to him or offer anything like that to him. We feel like we've been given such a gift through this experience that it's something, you know, we've got to share. So, you know, we've been more um, excited to volunteer at church or help out when we can do the feed the hungry thing. Mm -hmm. Just, just try to, you know, give back a little bit of what we've been given. I always wondered, I'm like, is this going to be something where I, I magically change and I'm able to you know, resist sin easier. Am I never going to be angry again? Am I never going <laughs> to be greedy again? And it's and that's not the case at all. I mean, you um, you still fail every day, and you still fall short every day. And um, but I think that what does change about you is that you have this assurance now. That box has been checked off, and um, you feel like you've got this bulletproof vest on now, and uh, that when sin hits you, it doesn't stick anymore. And you know, just having that gives you a sense of peace. You know, that that compartment of your life, that really big compartment that overshadows our whole lives, that's taken care of. And so I noticed, you know, for me, I'm slower to anger now or I'm a little bit more understanding of, of other people. And, you know, they're they're able to take action with people in the community a little bit more quickly. It's, it's like taking care of this huge roadblock in your life um, and getting that out of the way that that's opened us up to handle everything else better and so you know life hasn't gotten easier but I think we've just gotten the armor to handle it better amen our desire is that you like Chris and Sarah will leave here with lasting hope and good news in your hearts throughout this encounters series we've been looking at the good news recorded for, for us by a particular Bible writer named Mark. In the Bible, there are four narratives of Jesus' life and teaching. These are called the Gospels. The Gospels are a great place to begin reading and learning about Jesus. And, and we want to invite you to maybe pick up one of these free New Testament portions of the Bible in the lobby. And as we begin this series of messages that you can also listen to on our website, we notice that that Mark described various encounters people had with Jesus. Mark, or John Mark, his full name, began his telling of the Jesus story in this way. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. So when we describe the gospel or good news, which is what that word gospel means of Jesus, we see that people of every generation, people like Chris and Sarah that we just witnessed on the video, and people like you and me are called by Jesus to have a change of thinking or repentance. That's what that word repent means. That leads to a change of life and to believe the good news. Now let's fast forward to the end of Mark's gospel, 
to see more fully what this good news is all about. Now, by the way, this week, Tammy Stahl, who serves as Southwest Children's Minister, and her husband, Greg, shared a story, an encounter in their family that I wanted to share with you. They, were, they, they shared their whole family, including grandma and granddad too, were all sitting around the table enjoying lunch, and, and Greg began discussing the end of the book of Mark. I, I guess they took the challenge I gave earlier in this series for everyone to, to read the book of Mark on their own. And so Greg's discussing the end of the book of Mark in which their eight-year-old son, Dean, piped up and said, don't tell me what happened. I'm only in Genesis. (laughs) If you know Dean, you can hear him saying that. So I want to give you a spoilers alert. We're going to examine today what happened at the end of Mark's gospel. Now, at first glance, the end of Jesus' life, according to Mark, doesn't appear to be good news. And yet, let's see how it ends up bringing, being some incredibly good news. Let's pick up Mark's telling of his good news as he records Jesus' arrest. That even sounds contradictory, but let's keep reading. As Mark records the arrest of Jesus by the authorities of of his day, which he describes how traumatic this was for some of his first followers. When, when we started this series, I, I shared with you that I believed that Mark was an actual eyewitness of the life and teaching of Jesus. And I, I told you if he kept coming during the series, you would see Mark insert himself in this story. And in this next reading, which is found only in the Gospel of Mark, I believe that Mark describes himself in this scene. We read in Mark 14 in verse 50, then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. You see, I believe that the author of this book, Mark, was the original streaker running from this scene. How embarrassing it must have been for Mark to write himself in the story this way. And yet, as we've shared throughout this series, the people around Jesus are described in the Gospels as being very flawed, which gives me hope because I'm a very flawed individual. But it also gives even more credibility to Scripture because the writers don't make themselves look good. And yet, Jesus stands out in a very amazing way. We also mentioned throughout this series that Mark was very influenced by Peter, the Apostle Peter, most likely serving his is his secretary or scribe, and and that in many ways when we read Mark, we're reading the Apostle Peter's telling of the Jesus story. So we see Mark also highlights Peter throughout the gospel in a very significant way, and yet at times in a very unflattering light. In fact, in verses 66 through 72, if you've got the message insert, you can see that Peter even denied Jesus three times at a very crucial time. So as we read about this intense time in Jesus' life when he's falsely arrested for crimes that he never committed, we find that Jesus' closest friends and followers either fled 
or denied that they even knew him. Next, Mark tells us about the death of Jesus, his excruciating death, and that's recorded in Mark chapter 15. In verse 25, it says, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Can you imagine with me for just a moment this excruciating death that Jesus endured? By the way, did you know that the English word excruciating comes from seeking to describe the pain of the cross? That's what the word means. The whole process of crucifixion began at nine in the morning. Can you imagine nine in the morning? We used to have a 9 a.m. Sunday morning service And yet we found it it was a bit early because the crowd wasn't quite awake. I mean, they wouldn't even laugh at my jokes. Obviously, they weren't awake yet. And there were some weeks that I wasn't sure if I was awake at 9. So we've moved it back to 9.30. I think that's gone better. But can you imagine attending a crucifixion at 9 in the morning? And yet that's when this process of crucifying Jesus all began. The process of nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. And by noon... After he'd been hanging on the cross for three hours, the sky was completely dark and stayed that way until three in the afternoon. It appeared that even heaven was mourning the way that Jesus was being treated by the very people he came to help. And then Jesus utters this amazing phrase that has confused so many people through the ages, including myself, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we shared before, this is the moment in time that Jesus experienced for the very first time in all of eternity a real sense of separation or alienation from his heavenly Father. The Bible states that sin separates us from God. And here we see Jesus experiencing that separation, not because of something he had done, but because of something I have done, because of something you have done, and that's sin. He was willing to take sin upon himself. After six hours of excruciating physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, Jesus finally dies. And then to follow, following Jesus' death, Mark records the burial of Jesus' dead body. Mark describes it this way at the end of Mark 15. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Two things we want to notice in this description of Jesus' burial. The first is that Mark records that there were witnesses of Jesus' burial. He, he specifically mentions Mary Magdalene and, and a second Mary. In fact, in the New Testament, it seems like every other woman's named Mary. But uh, we, they were the ones that witnessed 
them placing the dead corpse of Jesus in this borrowed tomb. I believe that this second Mary is the mother of Jesus. Because you see, the Bible records that Mary had additional children after Jesus was born. Brothers named James, Jude, and Joseph or Joseph. I believe this Mary was the mother of Jesus. The second thing we want to notice here is that Jesus' body was placed in a borrowed tomb. You see, the poor of Jesus' day were often buried initially in a borrowed tomb. After a year or so, and by the way, this this kind of burial process seems really strange to our 21st century minds, but, but after a year or so, when the body had fully decomposed, people would go back into the borrowed tomb and take the bones of the deceased loved one and place them in an ossuary box, which would be their second burial. It's important to note Jesus never had a second burial. And by the way, such a box of Jesus' bones have never been found. So now the stage is set for the miracle at the end of Mark's gospel. One of the things that I've learned as we prepared for this year's Easter series is that we had unfortunately, as a church over the past several years, avoided the gospel of Mark. In our attempt to, attempts to try to keep things new, fresh, and vibrant here at Southwest, uh, earlier this year, I went back and I, I went back through my records and I looked at every Bible verse that we had taught and read and uncovered over the past five years to describe the resurrection of Jesus. And I asked myself, is there anything that we're missing? Is there anything that we've not fully explained about the resurrection And what I discovered is that we had never looked during the past five years at anything from the gospel of Mark. And so we did this entire series from Mark's gospel. And honestly, the reason that I have to admit why we've avoided Mark the past five years is that I personally lacked the confidence to accurately explain a footnote that is in most Bibles. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, if you look in the footnote, you'll probably see it's there regarding the last 12 verses of Mark 16. Most Bibles will have a footnote that reads, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. Now, personally, I've struggled with this footnote for a couple of reasons. One is that I really like some of the things that are recorded in verses 9 through 20 about faith and mission. And the second is that I had never really dug into the background information on this passage and to fully understand this footnote. And yet, this year, I decided to quit running from this footnote. And so I've tried to read everything I could get my hands on in the weeks leading up to this this message about why do some people not think verses 9 through 20 was what Mark had originally written? And how can we make sense of the possibility that verse 8 is where Mark originally intended to end his telling of the Jesus story? Let's enter into that possibility 
this morning. Let's see what we might take away from this reading if it truly did end in verse 8. Let's, let's read it together. In verse 1 in Mark 16, it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. By the way, the third woman mentioned there, her name is not pronounced Salami, as some of you maybe have pronounced. She was not the inventor of a strange new lunch meat, but instead Salome was most likely the mother of two of Jesus' first 12 followers. As we compare the other gospel records, most likely she was the mother of James and John. We see the same three women who had witnessed Jesus' death on the cross, and two of the three women who had witnessed his burial are now headed back to the tomb following the Jewish Sabbath. In verse 2, we read, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? What do you see? I see extremely faithful, loyal women who are seeking to take care of the dead body of Jesus. They did not return to the tomb that day expecting to be part of a resurrection narrative. They were simply being dutiful and wanting to make sure that they properly attended to his body prior to our modern practices of embalming and coffins. They simply wanted to make sure that they applied the spices to his dead body to prevent a foul odor in this borrowed tomb. In fact, their biggest concern as they walked toward the the tomb was how could they as women roll this large stone that had been placed to seal the tomb? There's some questions that I asked myself as I read this. Where are all the men? Where was Peter? We, we last saw him mentioned in Mark's gospel, a broken, weeping man who undoubtedly felt like he had failed his friend at his most needed hour. Where were James and John? Why was it that these two guys who wanted to be great in the kingdom that Jesus was ready to establish, they wanted to sit at his right and his left hand, where are they to be found? And yet their faithful mom was there to take care of Jesus' body. Where was Mark? Was he still running? Or was he simply busy hiding his nakedness, ashamed of his lack of courage? Where were the men? Let's keep reading. In verse 4, But when they, the women, looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. These women had walked to the tomb expecting to see a a 30-something-year-old man badly wounded, crucified, dead body wrapped in a burial tunic with bloodstains. Instead, they arrive and see the very large stone had been rolled away. And as they enter the tomb, they see a young man dressed in dazzling bright white robes. 
This young man appeared to be an angelic being who illustrates youth, vitality, glory, hope, and life. I don't know about you, but I love being around those who are young. I still like to consider myself young. And yet yesterday, boy, it was, it was great to be around a bunch of young people at our annual Easter extravaganza. We had 14,000 Easter eggs on this hill behind me. We had 500-plus children that were searching for eggs. They weren't too hard to find. There's something about being around all that youth. It's invigorating. There's so much energy. There's so much excitement. There's so much incredible potential and promise for the future. So much life. These women had gone to the tomb expecting to find death. When they walked into the tomb, instead they found a reminder of life. It is they came face to face, not with death, which they had expected, but instead as they came face to face with life, they were amazed and, and, and with this unexpected angelic being in their presence. No wonder they were alarmed. The word alarm there uh, means a, a sense of both uh, fear, but also amazement and wonder. As we see over and over again in Scripture, when an individual person comes in contact with an angel or some heavenly being, if you've read Scripture before, what is their common response? It's almost always fear. And what's the common response that comes from the angel or the heavenly being? Almost immediately right after that fear response is don't be afraid. Let's see what this angel has to say to them. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. But he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I love this scene. I try to imagine what it would have been like to have been there. An excellent book that I read a number of years ago that's now been made into a movie. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read the book. It's entitled The Case for Christ. And it addresses this narrative. In a book, there's, there's some amazing quotes regarding this scene that we just read. The author, Lee Strobel, who was formerly an atheist, and he was a journalistic uh, reporter investigative journalistic reporter. And so he came to faith and then he wrote this book using his journalism skills. And he describes in his book that during the days Jesus walked on the earth and, and when Jesus was crucified, in that time in the prevailing culture of that day, women were not treated as equals to men. In fact, he writes, women were not even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. He goes on to write, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women who were friends of Jesus. He goes on to describe that, that if this were purely legend passed on by these early followers or some kind of mythic, mythical account to try to make themselves look good, first of all, they don't look good, but if, if they had simply tried to, to make up this story, they would have certainly portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb, probably people like Peter or John. 
He goes on to write, the fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. You see, this is evidence. This is true. Nobody would conjure up a story like this in that day unless it happened this way. Now, it's fascinating that in this setting, the angels specifically instruct the women to go tell his disciples, and specifically the angel told them to tell Peter. Now, Peter was one of the disciples. Why is he being singled out? Some have assumed that this passage is giving Peter some kind of preeminence over the other disciples, and yet I don't think that's the case. Remember that the disciples had all fled. They had undoubtedly felt like their hopes had been dashed. Their confidence in the future had been smashed. They put all their hope that Jesus would help them and help others have a brighter future, a future with more meaning in life. But then Jesus had been killed. And with his death, their dreams had died as well. The last time we saw Peter and Mark, he was a weeping, broken man who was deeply ashamed that he had not answered the call to stand up for his friend. He was undoubtedly thinking at that time, well, it's been an exciting, amazing three years, but it's over. It's all over. At this time, my hunch is that Peter was planning to go back and restart his fishing business. But he was undoubtedly going to go back to that business, the shell of the man that he once was, because, you see, hope had died in his heart. And yet these women are given the good news that Jesus has risen. Hope is alive. Evil did not win. Sin did not win. And finally, finally, the first time in human history, death did not win. Instead, Jesus had overcome sin and death, and because of this good news, Peter, Mark, the rest of the disciples, and all of us can have hope for the future. We no longer have to remain defeated by evil, sin, or death. We no longer have to be defined by our defeats and failures, but we can instead be defined by the one that we have placed our hope in, the one that has overcome. You see, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. We know this is true because we see the difference that the resurrection made in the lives of these first followers. Peter later would write these words in 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Another thing that is fascinating in this text is up to this point in Mark's gospel, when Jesus heals someone or performs a miracle in someone's life, what does he tell them all consistently? He always tells them, don't tell anyone. In fact, the last couple of weeks, I've had people, as we've walked through these various encounters in Mark's gospel, I've had people grab me in the lobby and say, why did Jesus tell people not to tell anyone? I thought maybe it was yeah, I've, I've wondered, was it reverse psychology? You know, I'm always telling the church, go tell people this good news. I thought, maybe I should try a new strategy. Don't tell anybody. It's too good. Keep it to yourself. But I don't really think that's why Jesus did that. I, I think Jesus 
knew that once the word got out who he was, that the authorities would come and arrest him and kill him, as they eventually did. And he wanted as much time as possible to pour into these first followers so they could become pillars in the early church. And yet now what does Jesus, through this angel, tell the women to do? Go tell. Go tell everyone. You see, now the gloves are off. It's time to let the whole world know. And yet, what does Mark record next? And you see, after my research, I actually think that this is most likely the way Mark originally intended to complete his gospel. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. Because they were afraid. Why in the world would Mark end his telling of the good news of Jesus in this way? Up to this point, people had been dying to tell the miracles that they had witnessed in, in their encounters with Jesus. Now we have these three trembling and bewildered witnesses being told to tell others. And Mark possibly closes his gospel with them saying nothing and being afraid. Personally, I think Mark ends his gospel with verse 8 because he's inviting us into the story. He's inviting us to imagine and write the end of the story. How do you think they responded eventually to this challenge? How will you respond to this amazing good news? Will you Be encouraged and inspired to tell others. When you boil it all down, I think that Mark is concluding his gospel with the ultimate mother of all fill in the blanks. And Mark is inviting you and me to fill in the blank with our own personal response to the good news of the empty tomb. Two years ago, Chris and Sarah, that were in the video that we showed at the beginning, filled in their blank with a response of being obedient and being baptized into Christ. You see, two years ago, they left this service, but the Lord didn't quit working in their life. He kept working in their hearts. And during brunch following the worship, they made a decision to surrender their life to Jesus and be baptized. How about you? Have you ever responded to the empty tomb? How are you going to fill in the blank in your life? Possibly for some in the crowd, this is the time for you to believe and respond by not only believing the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but by acting on it and participating and allowing to, by faith, experience that. Maybe some of you have made that decision in the past as I have, and and you're grateful that you've made that decision, but, but here's the question for you and for me if that's the case. Are you living a life that demonstrates that the tomb is empty and that you believe it with all your heart? Are you living your life in such a way to be a witness to the world around you, not just by your words, but by your actions and your deeds? 
As we conclude our time together this Easter weekend, we're going to observe a time of communion. Communion is not a memorial to a dead person, but it's a celebratory meal to participate with the faith that the risen Lord is here among us. He's in our midst. And if we will be obedient in our lives, we will see Jesus. Let's view communion today as we pass these trays with pieces of bread that remind us of the body of Jesus, as we take the cups that remind us of the blood of Jesus. Let's view this as a celebratory meal of Jesus being victorious, that Jesus lives. And because Jesus lives, hope lives. And for us to examine our lives and ask Am I living life with confidence and assurance? Am I in a relationship with this living, victorious, risen one? For those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus in the past during communion, use this time to to relive your initial decision to follow Jesus and in your mind, relive it and rededicate yourself to being a life that's been changed by the empty tomb. Maybe for some of you that are here that have never responded, maybe you pull out that communication card and you check a box saying, hey, I want to be baptized. Or maybe you even take more action by maybe grabbing me or grabbing someone that brought you following this service and saying, hey, could I be baptized today? This year, I'm going to ask Larry not to drain the baptistry following the services because when Chris and Sarah were baptized, they called me right after the baptistry was drained. I said, sure, you can be baptized, but you give me three hours. I got to fill it back up and warm it up. We're not going to do that this weekend because if somebody's ready to make the decision, we're going to leave the baptistry full all day. Just let us know. We'd be glad to make arrangements so you, so you, can experience the death, burial, and resurrection. Let's fill in the blank as we take communion today. How are we, how are you going to respond to the empty tomb? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that finally death didn't win. And that Jesus overcame. Thank you for his victory over death and sin. As we take communion, help us relive that in our hearts. But help us remember he's alive. He's here with us. And help us participate in this meal with him. Celebrating his victory. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings. Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. 
and 11.15 a.m. Lift up your head, lift up your voice.